have heard Jesus referred to by three titles. What do we, what do we hear Jesus called? He's called what? Prophet? Priest? And King, right? So we all know that as, as prophet, Jesus was the mouthpiece of God. The greatest revelation of God to man. He was, he was not just speaking the word of God to man, as the Old Testament prophets spoke God's word to man, but he actually is the word of God. See John 1.1. 1, 1. <laughs> he is the word of God. And since a prophet represents God to man, the measure of a prophet might be said that it's, it, we can measure a prophet by, by his closeness to God, right? Because he is representing God to man. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, definitely qualifies as a prophet for us, right? He represents God to us because Hebrews 1, he is God. He is the, the exact imprint of His nature. He is God. It's not hard for us to come up with scriptural support to show that Jesus is King, is it? From the Old Testament prophecies uh, of, a, of a coming King in David's line, all the way to the last book of the Bible, we read Revelation 1.5 where it says that He is the ruler of kings on earth. In Revelation 19.16, calls Jesus the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We see Jesus presented as King and we talk about Jesus presented as King. How often though do we think of Jesus as priest? And, and do we understand when we say that Jesus is prophet, priest, and King? How, how often do we, do we meditate on that aspect of Jesus' offices, his roles, his, his positions. How often do we think of him as priest? Maybe one of the reasons that we don't usually think of Jesus as priest very often is that we don't live in a context where there's priestly ministry going on, right? I mean, in the Old Testament, priests were, were a big part of, of the, the people of God, Right? I mean, they were always going to the temple. They were always making sacrifices, making... I mean, the, the, the priestly work was in front of their eyes all the time. But we grew up hearing, you are a priest to God, right? We're, we're, we're a kingdom of priests, right? So it, 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 maybe it kind of loses a little bit of the significance because we're like, well... We're not really doing anything priestly. So, okay, we're priests. Jesus is a priest. Great. But what does that really mean? What, what do we really have in our hands? What are we really holding? What, are we really, what, what knowledge do we really have when we, we understand that Jesus is priest? The original recipients of the book of Hebrews, however, different from us because they would have been very familiar with the priests and the priestly duties that that, that office holds. So they, you mean, look at, listen to the title of the book. What is the title? We're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews, okay? 
Hebrews, the, the, the Jews, that, that people of God. And yes, this is in the New Testament. So maybe you're thinking, well, this is, you know, the priesthood was done away with. Well, these people that received the, the, the original audiences of the, the New Testament, they lived in the, that transition time. They, they experienced the Old Testament priesthood. They experienced the transition from the old to the new. So they would have been very familiar with priests and the priestly work. So unlike a prophet who represents God before man, a priest represents man before God. That's what sets, that's what sets the, the, the ministries of the prophet and the priest apart. The prophet represents God to man, and the priest represents man before God. Because of this, Jesus' qualification for priests, to, to be a priest, rep, rests on his nearness to man. If, if he wasn't like us in all respects, he couldn't, he couldn't be a priest for us before God. Jesus' qualification for being priest rests on his nearness to man. And again, we see that Jesus scores a perfect score. Why is that? Because he was both fully God, qualifies him to be a prophet, and what? Fully man. So he is our qualified priest. He is fully man. So what does it mean that Jesus is priest? Well, we've, we've looked into the, the life of Christ and we've considered the death of Christ Pastor Reed showed us yesterday that the many convincing proofs of the resurrection and, and the importance of the resurrection of Christ. And now, this morning, we're tasked with studying the session of Christ. How many of you would be able to, before looking at this slide, would have been able to give me a working definition if I would have said, can you explain to me what it means that, that right now Christ is in his session? Would, would any of you, many of you, none of you, I don't know, been able to, to, to interact with that in, in any meaningful sense? Probably not many of us. And, and that's, that's to our shame as, as a church because that means we've, 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 we've looked over a, a super important part of the ministry of Christ. It's not something it's, that we talk about often. And maybe we've never even heard the term that's okay, because we have the opportunity now to introduce you to the session of Christ. Uh, just, a couple of, just a couple of things to, to understand what we're talking about here. The, the, the definition for session, the word session that we use to describe the session of Christ, is derived from a Latin word, sessio, meaning the act of sit, sitting. We use that today um, in... When we, when we talk about uh, like, in like an important body like the U.S. Congress is in session. That means they're, they're gathered, they're seated, they're, they're doing their work. They're, they're, they are in session. Specifically, Christ's session speaks of the fact that after the ascension, Jesus was invited by the Father to sit at the Father's right hand. The highest place of authority and honor 
in the entire universe. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ. Jesus, the man. Hear that when I say Jesus, the God-man, was invited to sit at the highest place of honor and authority in the universe, at the right hand of the Father. So that's what we're talking about. What is, what is Jesus, the God-man, prophet, priest, and king doing right now? Christ's session. A few questions to get us thinking here this morning. One, did Jesus work for our salvation end at the cross or the, and the resurrection? Two, if no, what is Jesus doing right now for our salvation? And three, how does the ongoing work, excuse me, that one went faster than I thought it was going to, how does the ongoing work of Christ, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to give me fits here, how does the ongoing work of Christ uh, benefit our lives today? What, what, do we, what do we gain from the ongoing work of Christ? So, did, did His work for our salvation stop at what we've already talked about yesterday? Life, death, burial, resurrection, and, you know, is that the entirety of Christ's work for us in the Gospel? And if not, what's He doing and how does that impact our lives today? If you would please open your Bibles, let's look at Hebrews 7, and we will go ahead and read Hebrews 7, 23-28 together. Now this, this is, uh, as I was talking to, to Jeremy and, and Pastor Brian and others, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's, we have a kind of a hard task in front of us because the, the book of Hebrews is, is, a, is a sermon. You know, it was, it was most likely preached and, and written down. And so we're jumping in halfway through a sermon and trying to pick up and, and understand what's being said and, and try to grasp what, what's going on here. So they'll, they'll, there's, a little bit of, there's a little bit of clunkiness because we're, we're jumping in halfway in, in whomever's sermon this was. Uh, people have theories. Nobody's, nobody's sure. If they're sure, they're, they're sure probably on false, on false uh, grounds. Um, but we're not really sure who preached this. But we are sure this is God's Word. And so we can, we can treat it as such. So let's read together. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests <coughs> excuse me, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, 
and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Well, I'm sure that that text is crystal clear for all of you, as it was for me when I read it through the first time, right? Nothing in it seems very complicated or tricky. If you're sitting here today thinking that, uh, I would invite you to please come up here and finish my, my session here, because um, that is not the case, is it? We read this and it's like, wow, what is, what is going on here? You, you start looking at some of that thing, some of that uh, language, and it's, it can be deep and confusing. Like I said, it's, it's in the middle of the book, it's in the middle of the sermon, and it's, and it's an extremely rich book. But it's not always easy to grasp what's in Hebrews. So we're going to do our best to keep the background work brief so that we can move on to the verses we are focusing on this morning, specifically in verse 25. Um, but we do need to look at a little bit of a little bit of background here. The writer of the book of Hebrews aims to convince his Jewish audience, so this was written primarily to a Jewish audience, he aims to convince his Jewish audience of one paramount truth. What is that? You probably know this. Jesus is superior, right? Or Jesus is better. That is the one thing that comes up over and over and over. Now it's now we see all sorts of different things that Jesus is better than. We see that he asserts that Jesus is better than angels. He asserts that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He says that his priesthood is better than Aaron's priesthood and the, and the Levitical priests. His new covenant is better than the old covenant that they could never fulfill. His blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. Because the blood of bulls and goats could never forgive sin. But his blood can forgive sin. So in every way, and compared to anyone or anything else, Jesus is better. And that is the overarching theme. If you could umbrella Hebrews with one theme, that's what it would be. Jesus is better. Our text today falls within the discussion of both Jesus' priesthood being better than Aaron's, as well as beginning the argument that the new covenant that Jesus ushered in is better than the old covenant. So that's kind of where we're situated within the book here. One note before we get going too far, Hebrews 5.1 tells us that the high priest is chosen from among men. That's one thing that we have to remember. This was true of the priests of the Old Covenant and must also be true of Christ if He is to fulfill that office. He must be chosen from among men. Because of this, Christ became incarnate not only on account of His eternal purpose to live among His people, but may we actually say primarily in order to fulfill the qualifications of high priest and to be able to usher in that new covenant. The Old Covenant high priests offered gifts and sacrifices for sin on behalf of men in relation to God. That's what Hebrews 5.2 tells us. 
He was the mediator between God and the people. God would come in judgment because of the sins of the people. And the high priest would stand in their place offering sacrifices that satisfied God's justice and demonstrated His mercy by punishing an innocent animal in the place of a guilty human being. That Christ fulfills this by offering Himself as the final sacrifice is made clear in Hebrews 5, verse 7. We can look at that later. But what we see here, the Old Testament priesthood sacrificial system was, was built on substitution. The guilty was, was, was not punished. The innocent, pure animal was punished in their place. Christ, we're going to look at as Christ the superior priest. So how is Jesus presented as a priest better than the Aaronic priests? That's something that we have to understand. And we're going to kind of move a little bit quickly through this. Um, this is, this is um, primarily in the, the, the back half of what we just read, verses 26 and following. But it's throughout that, that text that we just read. But we need to understand a few things first. How, how Jesus is presented as a priest better than the Aaronic priests. One, Jesus was a sinless priest. Verse 26, Jesus was a sinless priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Two, Verse 27, because Jesus was a sinless priest, He did not need to offer sacrifices for His own sin. But instead, He could offer Himself as a perfect sacrifice. That was something no other priest could ever do. There was never another priest that was, was guiltless as he came in to perform his priestly duties, the first thing that he had to do was make sacrifices for himself because he himself was stained with sin. But Christ, no. He was able to offer himself as sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice. He is better than the Levitical priests. Thirdly, his sacrifice, verse 27 tells us, was once for all. Once for all. That was a concept completely unfamiliar to the Old Testament priests, right? Man, it was not once for all. It was all the time, right? It was continually, daily, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of animals slaughtered yearly, all the time. Shedding the blood, shedding the blood, shedding the blood. Sacrifice, sacrifice. But Christ is better. He's a better priest with a better sacrifice. He offered Himself once for all. Verse 4, in verses 20 and 21 and 28, He was not appointed by the law, but instead by an oath. What, what's the significance of that? Well, this is God's promise. 
Look at these verses, verses 20 and 21. We didn't read these yet. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He is better than the old priests because they were, they were just born into it and, and, and they, were, they were following the laws that God had given them. They, they, were, made, they, were, made, they were appointed by the law and, and the old law was done away with, but, but Christ is, is appointed by an oath. His priesthood is secured forever by a promise of God. That is huge. There was no other priest that ever that God ever said to you are going to be priest forever. I promise you this. But Jesus was appointed by an oath. He wasn't. He wasn't appointed by the law. Verse 21, 24, 25, and 28 again just emphasize that point, that point that Jesus ministry as a priest is forever. Why? Because unlike the former priests that were prevented by what? Death from continuing in their office, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That makes him a better priest. When you think about it, it's like, well, so what if it was, so what if it was, you know, he lives forever and the old priests died. He always had another one come to take their place. But you think about that. If, if you had developed a relationship with, with, with the high priest, and, and you had gone and, and you had bared your soul and confessed your sins to this man and, and, and you, had, you had shared the burdens of your sin with him and, and he interceded for you. That would have been a, an intimate relationship that could have developed. But all of a sudden, you, oh, this one's dead and now you go and start over. Now, now the new priest, he's qualified, he's... He's appointed by the law. He's fulfilling his role. But you go in there and he doesn't know you. He doesn't know your history. He doesn't know the struggles. He doesn't know the victories. He doesn't know anything that you've, you've shared with the, the, for, the, the, the priest that's now dead and in the ground. You're starting from scratch with a new mediator who's supposed to represent you before God. And first he has to learn you. First he has to figure out who you even are. How are you going to represent somebody you don't know? But Christ, his priesthood, continues forever. He knows those who he is representing intimately and represents them well. So, Jesus is a superior high priest. We get it, okay? We've made the point. What does that matter to us? Here's our main idea that we want to look at this morning. Because Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. He is a complete Savior. Able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I know that's a lengthier main point than we normally look at. 
But, but all those things are so key. It was hard to, to try to pare that down anymore. Be, because Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, he's a complete Savior, able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's take a few minutes to look at this text together this morning. We're going to be focusing in on verses 23 through 25. First, we see a contrast between the former priests and Jesus in this part of the text. What's that contrast? Many verses 1. Okay? The former priests were what? Many in number. Because they were they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. This is the only use of this specific word in the New Testament. The original word carried the idea of unchanging. And when we speak of, speak of him and use this word in this context, unchanging in the context of, of the priesthood means without successor. That's what that word means when it says he holds his priesthood permanently. There will never be a successor. He is, he is it forever, the priest. So we see the contrast between the former priest and Jesus, many verses one. We see the result of a priest who holds his priesthood permanently. What's that result? That, that Jesus, the perfect priest, is a complete Savior. It says, he consequently, verse 25, he is able to save. Consequently, what's that word mean? Because of what was just said, right? So we have to look at what was just said. So because Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, Verse 24, 23, 24, the, the main verb and subject and verb that we see in those verses are he holds the priesthood permanently. That's the main thought in those verses. And so consequently, because he holds his priesthood permanently, he is able to save to the uttermost. He is a complete savior. That's what that word uttermost brings in, in, into mind. Completely. He's able to see, save completely without fail. There's never going to be one that, that slips his grasp that he, he had hold of, but oh, I just couldn't hold on to it. How many of us have experienced that, right? You think, oh, I got this, and you're walking along, and all of a sudden it's like what you thought was firm is, is now like bobbling in like slow motion and falls to the floor and is damaged or crashes. That's not how Jesus is with those he holds. He, he is able to save to the uttermost completely. This text is a clear assertion of the capacity or ability of Christ to save completely. That is the extent that he is able to save completely. This runs completely counter to our sinful desires to control the grace of God in salvation, doesn't it? We, our, our, our natural, 
our natural selves, our flesh, wants to have some part in this, wants to, wants to be involved somehow, and we want to we have our say in our own salvation. How often do we hear things or maybe even think things like this? If I do this, then God will do or must do that. Or how often do we present the gospel to somebody like, if you just pray this prayer, how often have you heard somebody say, if you will just pray this prayer with me this morning, God must save you. God will. And, and they put the emphasis on the, the praying of a prayer, the mouthing of words, rather than the one who's able to save to the uttermost. It's a, it, it turns it on its head. It makes it a work. This passage strikes at the heart of a synergistic gospel, which I would argue is not really a gospel. It's not good news. Paul tells us if we change anything about the gospel, it's no longer the gospel, and it's anathema. It should be cursed. It should be damned. What do I mean when I say it's a synergistic gospel that, that blends um, our work with God? Synergism is simply that. It's, it's the cooperation. I want, there's two words we're going to look at. We're going to look at two, two ways of understanding salvation. One is synergistic. One is monergistic. Those are two words that if you're not familiar with them, you should probably write them down. And, and, and think about it, understand it, and meditate on it. So, synergism is the cooperation of two or more forces in the accomplishment of a goal. Teamwork. Think of that. It is from two Greek words, soon, meaning together, and ergon, meaning work. To work. So, in salvation, it describes the cooperative effort of God and man to accomplish salvation. Now, there is a spectrum of synergism. Not all synergists are the same. Okay, There are some synergists who say, we do almost nothing, just the smallest little thing. God is standing there just waiting to rescue us and, and really, really hoping that, that He can. And all we got to do is wave the white flag and say, mm, come here and help. And He will. That's all that's all that synergist believes. And then some synergists go full on <laughs> works. We have to do this, and we have to do that, and we have to do this, and we have to do that. And because of all of these things that we heap on, all these efforts, all these works, God responds with grace, and God saves. So there's a huge spectrum of, of synergistic belief. But it's, but it's all a blending. I think it was Ben yesterday that, that, that asserted that, that salvation is God's from, from start to finish. And it is. And that's what we want to understand when we hear the word monergism. Monos means one, and again, ergon, to work. So, clearly, there's one, only one force at work in accomplishing a goal. So if something is monergistic, there's only one that is, that is at work to bring something to pass. And that's what we see here. That's what we see in this text. 
He is able to save to the uttermost. Who is Jesus saving? Well, he's saving those who draw near to God through him. The text goes on to say that, doesn't it? So does this mean that maybe the synergistic guy that that thinks we have to do something, maybe that understanding of the gospel really is the correct view? Is Is this kind of leaving the door open for synergism? Is that what's happening here? Is the writer stating that Jesus is wringing his hands nervously as he waits for someone to draw near so that he can save? Is this a foothold for the synergistic view of the gospel? What do you think? No, it's not. We must understand that this is not prescriptive language that's being used here. This is not, this is not prescriptive language, but it's, it's descriptive language. It's just describing those who Christ saves. What difference does that make, you may ask? When we read this text, we must understand that this is a description of those Jesus is saving. What would the original audience have understood this to mean? That that the Hebrew audience would have immediately recognized that the work of the priest was always for the people of God that had drawn near to him. They never once thought that the priests in the Old Testament, when they gathered in in the tabernacle, they never once assumed that those priests were making sacrifices for the the Amorites or the the Babylonians or the Hittites or all these otherites that were pagan nations around them. They never assumed that the priest was going in there interceding for for all of those people. No. Who was was it understood that the, the priests were interceding for? For the people of God that were drawing near to him. It was a clear understanding of the, that the work of the Old Testament priests was specifically intended for those who are a part of God's people. There wasn't a Jew alive in the Old Testament that would have seen his drawing near as a work that he must do. Rather, the drawing near to God on the Day of Atonement was the expression of their inability to do anything at all to save themselves. The very fact that they were coming in the prescribed way that God said to draw near to them was was their admission of their own inability to save. It was the admission that we need the work of the priests on our behalf because, because we can't come to God. They must mediate for me. Scripture is full of statements that argue that the unregenerate heart does not ever draw near to God. Paul in Romans makes it abundantly clear. He says, there is not one that seeks after God. There is not one that does good. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 53 tells us. We could go on and on, but the point has been made. We only love God because He first loved us. Right? It's our drawing near to God. And this text is not a prescription. Like, if you want Jesus to be your Savior, then you must draw near to Him. No, this is a descriptive text saying these are the people who He saves to the uttermost. Those whom He has drawn to Himself. 
those who love him because he first loved them. How is this salvation accomplished? Look on in verse 25. Jesus intercedes for all that specific people described as those who draw near to God through him. Look at that together. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. There's that, there's that priestly aspect again brought in. He is the one mediating. He is the one that is the, the, the way to God. Because Jesus has entered into the holy place, not made with hands, offering himself, we see in verse 27. That's how this salvation is accomplished. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He's, he's presented in this text as a unique priest because he is both priest and sacrifice. He is offering up as the priest himself as the sacrifice. Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. So what does it mean when we see that that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. We see that at the end of, of verse 25, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to, to God through him since. We have a since. That, that says, that, that's telling us something. That since is important. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. That, that shows us how it's being accomplished. Shows us how our, our salvation is guaranteed to the uttermost because He is always living to make intercession for us if we are His. You know, one thing that, that, has, that is true right now is we looked at the, the life of Christ and the, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and all of those things we we can we can we could preach and we can share with with both believers and unbelievers and we can we can we can press upon an unbeliever the the work of Christ on the cross and and show him his need for sin and we can we can show the resurrection and and the the triumph over death and we can press that on them compassionately like like Brian talked about yesterday but this work that we're talking about here this morning, this intercessory work is not for the unbeliever. This is, this is for those who are in Christ. Those who draw near to God through Him. And that's the only group that He lives to make intercession for. It's not for anyone else. The Old Testament priests didn't intercede for the surrounding pagan nations. And Jesus, our high priest, doesn't intercede for people at large. It's for his own, those who have drawn near. 
So what does it mean that Jesus intercedes for us? Do we still need a priest now? I want to read this uh, quote. Hopefully it's big enough to see. I want to read this excerpt from Why We Need a Priest by Nick Batzig in Table Talk magazine. Believers rightly love to talk about the finished work of Jesus. After all, Scripture puts the once-for-all atoning sacrifice of Christ in the driver's seat of redemptive history and of the Christian life. However, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is only one half of His priestly work. The work of the priest under the Old Covenant was to sacrifice and to intercede. As the great high priest, Jesus now always lives to make intercession for those whom he has sacrificed himself to God. The writer of the book of Hebrews focuses on both sides of Jesus' priestly work. His finished work of offering himself to God as the perfect sacrifice and his unfinished work of continual intercession. The Christian life can only be lived in light of these two sides of Christ's role as the high priest over the house of God. That is... That is, hopefully, it was for me. When I read that, I was like, wow. That is, that is a, a major shift in, in, in part of my understanding of the gospel. That, that Christ's work on our behalf was, was there's, a, there's a part, yes, that, that the Scripture and, and all through Hebrews we see his, is once for all done and completed, but yet His work for us goes on. There's more to it that he is doing now as priest. So we must, with the writer of Hebrews, consider both the finished and unfinished aspects of Jesus' priestly work if we want to understand exactly what bearing the priesthood of Jesus has on the Christian life. The original audience, whether it was spoken as a sermon or written as an epistle, it doesn't really matter, but they were a suffering people. And this audience was being tempted to turn back from Christ, turn, turn away from the gospel to a ritualistic form of Judaism in order to avoid persecution. We see the author putting in a lot of work to help these believers understand the significance of the priestly work of Jesus for their continuance in the faith. So how did the author go about encouraging these believers? How did He did so by sharing with them the benefits of the priesthood of Jesus. So we're going to take a quick look at what, what he shared about the priestly work of Christ with this struggling group of believers. Benefits of the priesthood of Jesus. One, as believers, we have a clear assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 8.12, These benefits are ours in Christ because of His priestly work, both complete and ongoing. So, so not all of them are like, well, this was only because of His completed work, this is only because of His ongoing work. Well, this, is, this is, we're looking at the priestly work of Jesus as a whole. Some lean more toward the, the completed work, some of these benefits lean more toward the ongoing work of Christ. But it, it's, it's a blend of, of the work of Christ as priest. So let us now join the original audience and take in these benefits. Meditate on them together. 
Chapters 8 through 10 are saturated with the explanation of the work of Jesus as priest for us. Unfortunately, we don't have time to read it all, so we're just going to highlight some of these things through these chapters, some of these, some of these just, just glorious truths. And maybe later you can go on home and, and revisit these or maybe read the whole section, 8 through 10, or really, really go all out and sit down and read the whole book of Hebrews. It'd be a great exercise. So we see first, as believers, we have a clear assurance of the forgiveness of sins. This is arguably the greatest promise of the new covenant. God will forgive sin and remember it no more. Hebrews 8.12, Hebrews 10.17. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice when he was both the priest and the lamb in Hebrews 7.27, where we talked about that, he offered up himself. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice when he was both priest and lamb at Calvary accomplished this for the people of God. The blood of Christ that was shed at the cross is the blood by which God forgives the sins of his people. Here is a great truth. Because of this priestly work of Christ, believers no longer have any consciousness of sin. Think about that. Wow. We have a cleansed conscience. Hebrews 9.14 and 10.22. We're not going to take the time to go to all of these necessarily. In addition to the forgiveness of sins, believers have experienced a heart cleansing by virtue of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Through the blood of our priest, Jesus, we have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, Hebrews 10.22 says. It is only the blood of Jesus that makes a sinful worshiper acceptable to a holy God. Hebrews 9.14 tells us that the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Sorry, we're having to go quickly through these, but, but, but try, to, try to get what we can here. A, a confidence, thirdly, as believers... Because of the priesthood of Jesus, we have a confidence to enter God's presence. Look with me at Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What a privilege. Because of Jesus' work as priest, again, both the complete and ongoing work we can confidently and with full assurance draw near to God. If you look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, really quickly, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence 
Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are assured not only of acceptance by God, but Jesus, our priest, mediates mercy and grace to help in time of need. He's our priest. He gives us that access to God. And we can draw an eye in full assurance. Nothing, nothing need make us fear. Oh, will God accept me? He's accepted Christ. We don't have to fear acceptance. And Jesus, our priest, mediates mercy and grace to help in time of need. Fourthly, we see a certain sanctification. As believers, we have a certain sanctification. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10 and 14 gives us yet another benefit that is ours because Jesus is our priest. I don't have time to read these texts and I apologize for that. But if you look at verse 1 and verse 10 uh, in Hebrews 10, we see, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities that can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So we see the old, the old way can never make perfect those who draw near. But look at verse 10. We see, and, that by, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have a, we have a certain sanctification that, that we possess. The law could never make perfect those who draw near. However, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, we have been positionally sanctified. Our sanctification is certain. We have been made holy. What else do we see? We see as believers we have a completely secure inheritance. Hebrews 9 verse 15 Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The priestly work of Jesus ensures that believers receive the promised eternal inheritance. The writer begins using the language of last will and testament in this paragraph and applies it to the priestly work of Christ in the new covenant. When Jesus offered himself as sacrifice and died, he redeemed God's people from the legal condemnation of the old covenant and secured by his death an intercession for us, the everlasting inheritance. Number six, as believers we have a compassionate, sympathetic helper. We mentioned earlier that the difference between a prophet and a priest is that a prophet represents God to man and a priest represents man to God. We said that, that one of the qualifications of a priest is that he must be near man. 
Jesus as high priest is a sympathetic priest. We just read Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. He was tempted yet without sin. And he understands our weakness. A priest must have that experiential knowledge of the struggles of those he is representing or he will not be able to represent them well. Jesus knows he, he knows our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He is our perfect high priest. And He is a compassionate, sympathetic helper. We see, seventh, that we have a, a confidence. As believers, we have a confidence in our preservation. Here is perhaps the greatest focus on the ongoing work of Jesus as priest. Consider this with me this morning. The writer focuses on the foundational truth that we will persevere because the ever-living priest is preserving us. This is seen in Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save to the uttermost since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding, praying for us. We can't do justice to it in the time that we have remaining, but look at John 17 to see how Jesus prayed while He was on earth for His disciples and for all those who would come after them. Verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You have given Me that they may be one even as we are one. He claims that while He was with them, in verse 12, He kept and guarded them. He prays in verse 15 that the Father would keep them from the evil one. There's more to consider here, but, but we have to go, we have to move on. Listen to Jesus' words to Peter when he tells him that he would deny him. In Luke 22, 31 through 32, he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed. For you that your faith may not fail. He's interceding for his own. We have a confidence in our preservation. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That confidence in the preservation of Christ. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus, our great high priest, is occupied with the preservation of his people. Brothers and sisters, this should be a great comfort to your hearts. We know that we are weak in this body of flesh and would fall away if left to our own selves. But Christ, our interceding priest, will not let that happen to any of his own. How encouraging to read Christ's prayers while he was on this earth. How much more comfort should it bring us to know that he is now seated in the throne room of God. The once dead, now ever living priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. One more text to note. 
1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is, our, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We have a perfect representative who has lived, died, and risen for us and whoever pleads the merits of his finished work on behalf of his people. One more quote from that Table Talk magazine article. The entirety of the believer's life can only be lived in light of the priesthood of Christ. As the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus preeminently functions as the great high priest over the house of God. In the words of James Henley Thornwell, Priesthood is the perfection of mediation. And we have such a perfect mediator in Jesus who has by one offering perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10, 14. There's a sobering warning though that we must hit before we close our time this morning. I want to close with Hebrews 10, 26-31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. So if you're here today and, and you just listen to all these things about the work of Christ as, as priest, maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you've been in church and, and, and thought all along that this was true of you and maybe you've, maybe you've grown, grown comfortable with, with feeling like you're okay. If Christ is not your high priest and you've just been pretending and, and, and you've just been going along with it, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There comes a point where, where, where when you stand before God, the, the, the pretending is no good. There's, there's, there's nothing other than being in Christ that will grant you acceptance with a holy God. If you don't understand what that means, come and talk to us. We would love to share once again the gospel with you and and show you how you can know for sure that Christ is interceding for you. That you're not one of the Amorites or the Hittites outside the camp that, that the priest is not concerned with. You can know that you are being interceded for. You can know that Christ is is praying for you. We would love to show you that. 
We'd love to take time to open God's Word and show you that. Please come to us. Today is, today is the day of salvation. Don't ignore such a great salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled and grateful for Jesus, our high priest, and his work. We don't deserve a high priest. We don't deserve a mediator. We deserve your wrath. But we thank you that you saw fit to save us to the uttermost. We, saw, we are so thankful that you drew us unto yourself and that, that you caused us to love you because you first loved us. Lord, if there are those here today who don't know the, the work of Christ as their own priest, convict, draw, and may we rejoice to see the, the blood of Christ applied to yet another sinful soul. We pray that, that you would be honored with the rest of our time together today. In your name we pray, amen.